the University of Notre Dame, these are Notre Dame Stories, a podcast that highlights the work of the university's faculty and students. In this episode, Helping the Most Vulnerable, a report from the White House Council of Economic Advisors declares the war on poverty largely over. A Notre Dame researcher who helped produce the data behind the report explains that statement and asks the question, are we measuring poverty correctly in the U.S.? And... Two Notre Dame students signed up to spend their summer at a shelter near the U.S.-Mexico border, helping migrant families who are seeking asylum. But they didn't know the role that shelter, called Casavitas, would play when the immigration issue exploded. Today, we're spending about a trillion dollars a year to counteract uh, poverty, which leads to a really important question of, are we making progress in that investment? Is this investment paying off? And the official poverty measure tells us the wrong answer because of its flaws. Jim Sullivan is the Gilbert F. Schaefer College Chair and Professor of Economics at Notre Dame. He's also the co-founder of Notre Dame's Wilson Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities, or LEO. Yeah, so the idea of the war on poverty really comes out of President Johnson's State of the Union address in 1964. And in that address, he introduced the idea that the government needs to be doing more to fight poverty in America. At that time, poverty rates were upwards of 20%, 20%, so one in five individuals were, were classified as poor. Our task is to help replace their despair with opportunity. And this administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America. And what he proposed was a set of policies to try and address poverty in America. Uh, those, those proposals have uh, become programs that still exist today, including the Head Start program, food stamps, which is now known as SNAP, uh, Medicare, and Medicaid. So they're following that State of the Union address, President Johnson uh, led the passage of uh, several pieces of legislation that now today uh, we're spending upwards of a trillion dollars a year on programs that are designed to improve outcomes for disadvantaged families in the United States. How, how are these, because um, this is going to be very important, how are these programs measured? And I guess maybe my question is, has this measurement evolved since their inception? So uh, it's it's actually fairly simple. So the idea is that we take a family's pre-tax money income, so their earnings plus other cash income that, that, that they have, and we compare it to a specified poverty line. And that poverty line is going to be different for families of different sizes and composition. And so, a for example, today, uh, the poverty line for a family of four with two adults and two kids is just under $25,000. So if your pre-tax money income falls below $25,000 and you're a family of four, you're considered poor uh, by the official poverty measure. So that was 
designed by the Social Security Administration in 1964. They specified the poverty thresholds. And for the most part, the only change that has happened since then is that we've updated those thresholds over time using the CPI, the, the standard price index that we use to account for inflation. What does that leave out? How does that maybe not give us the full picture? Yeah, and it, it's important to think about this in the context of the war on poverty because those programs I mentioned, Head Start, Food Stamps, Medicaid, Medicare, none of those are directly captured in the official poverty measure. The metric we're using to, to measure the impacts of these programs uh, completely omits the programs that we've used to try and address the problem. Talk to me about your involvement in, in creating this report, um, the Council of Economic Advisors report, uh, and what work uh, kind of led to this declaration that uh, the war on poverty, as, as we have understood it, uh, is largely over. The Council of Economic Advisors has a staff that produced the report, and in it they relied uh, on my research in drawing some some conclusions. And uh, they they do make this very strong claim uh, that the war on poverty is over. Uh, I want to make clear that those are their words and and, and not <laughs> my words. But given that it that uh, they support that claim by referring to some of my work, I should, I should probably speak, speak to, to uh, how that works. One of the, the key points to understand here is that the official poverty measure uh, has a number of well-documented flaws. We've talked about uh, one of those most, most obvious uh, already, which is that it, does, it fails to capture many of the key government programs that have expanded over time uh, and are designed to improve outcomes at, at the bottom. Um, but there are other really important features or sh shortcomings of the official poverty measure that turn out to make a huge difference uh, in our understanding of what has happened to poverty over long periods of time. Uh, so one of the other key uh, points or flaws in the official poverty measure is this idea that we've been adjusting the thresholds over time uh, by the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. Um, now, this is a bit, a bit wonky, but the, the fact of the matter is there's well-documented uh, evidence and strong consensus that this inflation rate, the CPI, overstates inflation um, by a little bit each year. Now, this doesn't really matter for most things in terms of year-to-year -year adjustments, but when you're doing 50-year comparisons, this turns out to matter a lot. So to, to see that, if you just take the official measure between 1980 and today, the official poverty, tell, the official poverty rate will tell you that poverty has, it has remained virtually unchanged, that we've made no progress at reducing poverty in America. If you make a simple adjustment to the price index that incorporates the consensus and the bias, that adjustment alone indicates that poverty has fallen by six percentage points. That's a difference of 18 million people being out of poverty uh, and tells a vastly different story about the progress that we've made. So what are some of the other factors that, uh, that play in that we should really be considering here? Yeah, so the other key point is that the official poverty measure relies on family income. 
And there are two really important drawbacks with that. The first is that income really isn't the right concept when we want to think about uh, whether or not an individual or family is poor. Um, and to be, the reason is that income calculate refers to your current resources uh, as opposed to your long-term resources. So for example, income for people who are working might be high, but your, but your total resources, and, and it might actually reflect your the total resources the family has when you're working. But think of a retired couple uh, who uh, has worked all their lives and saved up a substantial uh, retirement savings. Uh, they live comfortably in a nice home, have nice nice cars, and and can you know eat eat out regularly. But they have zero income. That couple would be considered poor by the official poverty measure because their income is zero. But they're living off their their assets and they're living living quite well. So income for many groups uh, is not the right can- concept. Uh, you know for retired individuals and families is one group students is another right so students oftentimes live independently but off the support of the income of others right? they, they might not be living with their parents but getting getting support from uh, from their parents uh, you know I teach at, at a university students are living off campus here at Notre Dame uh, I would not characterize as living in poverty but according to the official poverty measure they are poor mm. if because they're not because they're not working and don't have that mm. that cash earnings would be correct to say that um, instead of just looking at things on paper and um, you know these kind of clear black and white statistics we should maybe be looking at ways to uh, quantify quality of life I would say absolutely yes to that question. We should not just be looking at whether or not they have sufficient resources to um, get them above some pre-specified line. We should ask, uh, you know, do they enjoy their job? Are they healthy? Um, Are their children uh, receiving the opportunities to succeed in society? There's so many aspects that go into this broader concept of well-being, and I think those aspects are incorporated into the general concept of what we think of when we mean poverty, right? So poverty is much more than just a lack of resources. And in fact, um, in the developing world and in in many countries throughout Europe, they're moving towards these multidimensional measures of poverty and well-being. The way I think about it is uh, there's no scientific approach to where we draw the line in the sand. We should draw one uh, and then monitor and track that over time in a consistent way so we can answer the important question are we making progress mm-hmm. and then it's a separate question um, you know what re- what does it really mean to be poor or to be out of poverty in in America and um, that is a, a, a really important discussion that should also be in uh, be informing the decisions of policymakers mm-hmm. broadly your research shows that um, there is a success story here or at least mm-hmm. uh, there is some good news on poverty. Why is it that do you think that uh, we don't hear that very often? Yeah, and that's perhaps been the the most frustrating part of this work because I really think the evidence uh, is quite clear. And in fact, we're not the only ones uh, making this point. Uh, but but I, I think there there are some some explanations for why it's been so difficult to get this this message across, particularly to, to policymakers. And it has to do with uh, some entrenched uh, ideas that that are fairly partisan. So. Uh, 
uh, policymakers have for a long period of time uh, treated the official poverty measure as fact. And then based on that, fa- uh, that those statistics, um, drawn some clear conclusions that perhaps fit the, the, the ideas that they have, um, and then they've been reluctant to change that. So what do I mean by that? So conservatives, for example, uh, have looked at the official poverty measure and said, look, it says that poverty rate today is no better than it was in 1980. In fact, it's no better than it was in the early 1970s. Um, so therefore, uh, the war on poverty has failed. Ronald Reagan in his last State of the Union address uh, famously said, my friends, we fought a war on poverty and poverty won. And he based that entirely on the official poverty measure, which showed that the poverty rate was higher when he said that in 1988 than, than it was uh, uh, you know, shortly after the war on poverty started in the early 1970s. On the other side, we have progressives who have said, poverty rate is higher today than it was in some some point you know early in the 1970s and this calls this is a call for greater investment and expansion of programs uh, to address the the growing uh, needs of the disadvantaged I don't take sides on either of those arguments um, uh, but what I do want to challenge is that they're based on on an, an inaccurate measure of poverty the clear story is that poverty has fallen over time. And what we should be doing is acknowledging that. Both sides should be acknowledging that. And then have an important and informed discussion about what does this mean for uh, policy on poverty, anti-poverty programs today, given that we've made this progress. What you're not saying is the work is over. Clearly, there's more work to be done in this area, correct? That's right. And and that's where I would... uh, challenge the Council of Economic Advisors statement that we've won the war. I like to say that we're winning the war, uh, but new challenges arise. We have the opioid crisis. We have uh, children who don't have the same opportunities mm-hmm. if they grow up in the inner city than if they grow up in, in, in a nice neighborhood. Um, there are many challenges that we still need to address. Far too many people are living on too few resources here in America, which is striking given that we're one of the richest countries in the world. And uh, and so there's, there's a lot of work to be done. The idea of policy effectiveness, finding what's working and how it's working, and the extent to which it's working, that is kind of the foundational premise behind the Wilson-Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities, correct? Th- that's right. Yeah. So the Wilson-Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities, or LEO, is a research center that I launched with my colleague Bill Evans about six years ago. And what we do is, well, we recognize that um, we're investing a lot of resources in this country on trying to fight poverty. And we have metrics like the poverty rate to understand the overall impact. We have very little information about each specific program, which program's working, which programs aren't working, and what impact are they having. If you're going to invest a trillion dollars on improving outcomes for disadvantaged groups, uh, 
you, you should want to, you better want to know what the impact of that mm-hmm. investment is going to be. And so what the Will Shinshian Lab for Economic Opportunity is about is measuring the impacts of these programs. And we really focus in on the on the local level, because after all, the, the, the war on poverty really is happening. The, the battles on the front lines are at the local level where nonprofit social service providers are launching innovative programs to try and address the needs of their community. And what we ask is, are those initiatives actually moving the needle and moving the needle enough to justify the the investments that they're making in these programs? So you're figuring out what's happening locally and then how does that scale up? That's exactly right. And, you know, the idea we have in mind is that in order to have effective programs at the national level, you need to start locally, identify the most effective programs, scale those programs, test them again, mm-hmm. measure their impact, demonstrate their effectiveness. And then once you've done all that, you've created a really powerful argument for scaling them at a, at a national national level. And so our hope is that by creating more evidence on the impact of programs at the local level, we will generate much more effective effective programs at the at the national level. And so what we do is we partner directly with local social service providers to uh, incorporate into their programs an impact evaluation so we so that we can provide the most rigorous scientific evidence possible on the impact of their program. And armed with this evidence, social service providers can, um, well, it informs them in terms of how to design their programs, right? How to allocate their scarce resources to uh, improve the outcomes of the populations that they serve, but they also have this evidence to tell uh, a compelling story. And this story resonates with other social service providers who are asking the question, hey, what are you doing in your community that works? And, and, And our partners can say, here's what we're doing, and here's why we know it works. Jim, thank you very much, sir. Thanks, it was fun. Casavitas sits on an otherwise nondescript block of downtown El Paso. It's near the convention center and another couple blocks from where the minor league baseball team plays its games. We visited over the summer to meet up with Francis Brockman and Daniel Rottenborn, two Notre Dame students who are working there for the Annunciation House. Annunciation House is a Catholic organization that helps asylum seekers take their next step in the U.S. Brockman and Rottenborn are here for a summer service learning program through Notre Dame's Center for Social Concerns. What's interesting is that they're learning about the people affected most by immigration policy by living among the immigrants themselves. They're doing laundry, helping to prepare meals, just overall living in community with these people. And yeah, we have a shower, we don't have our own bathroom. Um, and so the living situation, we, we like to believe that um, it's this close to the guests so we can be in closer solidarity with them. Um, you know, sort of live through their struggle in their living conditions with them. Um, and that's like the motif of basically everything we do here is solidarity with the guests, meals with the guests, share a bathroom with the guests. 
Their duties are part custodial, but also part administrative. On like a normal day where we receive immigrants, we'll get like a text from our boss. Um, we'll, it'll be like, okay, so, so many people, like 20 people will be dropped off by um, ICE. So the ICE bus rolls up, um, a bunch of people come in, we like, explain some house rules, and then we start like taking down their information to be able to contact their families. That was the gig they signed up for anyway. Not an easy one to begin with, but not long after they arrived, the immigration issue went from hot button to nuclear. Because, you know, most of them have been in detention or some other form of custody for anywhere from, you know, a couple days to, you know, over two months. Um, we were guests here at the house now that was in um, county for 70 days, separated from her son. The issue of family separation was dominating the news, and Annunciation House was right at the center. I knew immigration was a hot button issue, but then I just couldn't have imagined the crazy stuff that would have happened in between when I signed up and since we've even been here. And today, parents separated from their children shared their stories during a news conference. The first group of immigrant parents who were separated from their children have now been released in El Paso. This is just the first step in the families being reunited. Just minutes ago, I spoke with a father from Guatemala who says he doesn't know where his daughter is. They received 30 people who said they had been separated from their children. This was believed to be the first group of migrants who had been released after President Trump's executive order ending the practice. The first group of immigrant parents arrived here at the Annunciation House in downtown El Paso yesterday, still hoping to find their children. These are parents who are staying at the Annunciation House in downtown El Paso, and they realize, yes, they broke the law, but right now the most pressing issue for them is reuniting with their children. And Francis and Daniel found themselves in the middle of it. Now they were connecting migrants with lawyers, not family members elsewhere in the states. As they're doing this, the issue is gaining national attention. Politicians begin visiting. Francis and Daniel hosted a visit from two sitting U.S. congressmen and escorted them to the El Paso Port of Entry, one of the places where asylum seekers give themselves up to Border Patrol. We walked there with them to that port of entry. It's a couple of blocks from Casa Vitas. We asked them to reflect how the new tasks they've been given in this job has changed the experience for them. We signed up to perform a service that was needed, that's still needed, that, you know, we, we, you know, we made this decision to come here for the right reasons. And I think that, frankly, it is um, a shame in, in a lot of ways. Um, that it has had to escalate to this point. Back at the house, there was kind of a lull, a few people coming and going. World Cup was on in the background. But for the most part, the volunteers are waiting for the arrival of the next group released by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Before the bigger group arrives, a young woman who is pregnant is dropped off individually by an ICE contractor. They see their fair share of young mothers here, some very young. When we are there, we see a five-day-old baby. Her mother had lost the number of the persons she was trying to reach in the U.S., and calls back home have gone unanswered. She was just a teenager. For Francis and Daniel, it's individual stories like these that stick with them. 
Understanding the plight is the beginning of kinship. And, that, and I'm like 20. So just that, how different her life is at, that, at the same point mine was at 18 is just still something that shocks me every day. And so the students are learning that government policy has real impact on people's lives. And a really effective way to learn that, at least in the short term, is to come alongside the lives of the people who are affected most. This summer fills in a cultural gap in, in, in knowledge and learning and teaching um, that you just can't get on campus. Notre Dame Stories is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. 